thing. I know it's not, it's more involving than that, but that's the core of it. To all who will believe, to all who will believe the Lord Jesus, what he has done, and then renounce Satan and their involvement, my involvement with him, with my sins, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the gospel. That's why we're here. I trust. I also thought of uh, Tim and Cheryl. They're just enjoying some cooler weather. We're enjoying cooler weather too, aren't we? Um, I must make an apology, I guess, again, for Wednesday night. Um, they have in the said, yep, they got the furnace going. You don't have to put the reset button. And they got here. It was 55 degrees. And well, we should have canceled the service, but went ahead. And yesterday, he um, said they're getting ready for the whatever they had yesterday. And he's going to start the furnace. And it's going to run all night long. And it won't strut off until uh, after lunch today. So it's going to be 70 degrees. I got here this morning. It was 55 and the reason was because whoever was here last yesterday or last evening had left the exhaust fan on. There was just cold air pouring in as the furnace was trying to heat it up. So uh, that's what had happened this morning. So uh, I learned a new word text to me from Mike. A-A-R-R-G-G. Ever hear that word? I think he's a little frustrated trying to keep this thing going. So, <laughs> but we are, praise the Lord, we have a building, and it's getting warmer, but I trust by God's grace we can have warm hearts. So, why don't we just pause for a word of prayer this time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you, Lord, for the great mercy that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. And we ask you, Lord, to instruct us in our hearts today and give us, Lord, uh, what we need, Lord, to be faithful to you, to, um, to not be deceived by the devil, by the enemy, as we have heard, and also that our trust in thee might grow. So we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some, I know that there was one preacher that I've heard of that whenever he spoke, within the first couple minutes, you could tell which direction he was going to go because he had only two topics. And it would always be on this topic or be on that topic. It was rearranged every time but it was always one or the other. Sometimes I think maybe I'm halfway there <laughs> because I'm going to go on uh, to a part of the message that I go on with a little more definition of the message that I had last time a month ago. And there are three different No, that's right. Let's go this way.
those are three words that I want to define this morning. They're not Bible words. They are definitions given to a way of thinking. Um, and and they're, they vary significantly from each other. So we'd like to look at that. But we won't get to those till at least partway through the message. Going to do a little bit of recap from the last message, which is values versus rules. And I said that you can see values versus rules addressed plainly in the scripture by Jesus himself. And I had read Mark chapter 7 where where these, the Pharisees were having issues with Jesus about him not keeping certain traditions. And Jesus returned and said, well, you actually break your uh, break God's command by keeping your traditions. Where does it say that? Where does it say I can't do that? And the assumption usually is that if you can't show a clear Bible verse dealing with something, it falls in the area of Christian liberty. So you may do or wear or participate in whatever you want to do if you so desire, if it's not forbidden in God's word directly. And I brought out that Jesus did not interpret scripture that way. And I said it is not a valid way or not a valid method of approaching God's word or determining God's will, that you need to have a chapter and verse for everything. So then I asked the question, well, what were the Pharisees doing? They were violating a value command, not a rule. They were, and, uh, and so on the one side, Jesus condemned the Jews for adding rules. On the other side, he expects his people to make applications from uh, from uh, deduce application from the law, even actions that are not spelled directly as such. On the one hand side, we are not to add to the law. On the other side, we are sinning if we don't add specifics to the law. And God had commanded us in John told the Pharisees in John chapter 7 and verse 24, he told them, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. In other words, don't apply the law woodenly, legalistically, but look below the surface so you can judge correctly. Not only does Jesus expect us to do that, he actually expects us to be able to do that. And here in a nutshell... It's a difference between a rule emphasis and a value emphasis. So how did Jesus interpret the scripture? Focus on the heart of God. The value, and we went, uh, we went down more after we actually come to the values where the thou shalt love the Lord thy God and love the neighbor as thyself. Those are actually the, the, when you distill everything down, that's where the real value is. And then it goes out from there. Now this morning, we want to look at some more principles of faithful Bible interpretation.
in the interaction, there's another, let me see here. There is one, another way of how Jesus interpreted scripture that is very relevant today. This is all preliminary before we even get to that. And that is in the area, I'm just going to use this, it's an example of what I'm talking about. Today, many Christians believe, or disbelieve rather, a straightforward reading of Genesis, the creation account, and the flood. And why do they do that? It's because there is pressure put upon Christians today, and especially in in, uh, in the educated circles, academic circles, there's pressure put on them from secular science. Secular scientists say that the universe is 15 billion years old. It started with a big bang back there. And that everything, all, all, uh, all the animals and plants and everything we see, is a result of biological evolution. And they would say everything happened by blind chance. Now, the majority of Christians and most Christian colleges and seminaries agree or partially agree with that. And they do that in contrast to a plain reading of Genesis. There, the Bible states that God made the universe and the world in six days. He said it was a perfect world. It did not have death in it. There was no disease. There was no death. And it was a perfect world before the fall. And if you take the genealogies of the scripture, you would basically come that the world is quite young. Well, young by evolutionary assumptions, I should say. (laughs) If you got a comparison here. The problem is no Christian can hold this view and retain any kind of respect respect or credence from the academics or the uh, any any kind of science, uh, the scientific community let's basically that way either you believe the bible as it's plainly written or you believe the scientists And the two do not agree with one another. And that's a hard choice if you circulate in those circles. So what can a Christian do to retain respect and avoid discrimination? Well, you. what are three main views proposed to try to harmonize the Bible with the scientists? Each of these views in insists or acknowledge that the universe as we see it is actually much older than what the Bible says. And they are, I was going to write it on the board, but I have that full ready, but you can write them down if you want to. The three views are theistic evolution, theistic evolution. The second one is progressive creation. And the third one is the ruin reconstruction theory, or also called the gap theory. So we'll just, in in preliminary, we're just going to go through this and explain how Jesus answers that.
Theistic evolution is the most liberal theory that it fully accepts the evolutionary story completely. The only difference is is that God did it rather than blind chance. And so we can still believe in God, but we can also believe in the Big Bang. We can also believe in evolution. We can also believe in everything that the secular scientist does except God did it. Okay, simple enough. It doesn't match with the Bible very good, though. The second one is progressive creation. And this is the darling of many academic and scientific Christians today. It is strongly promoted by world-renowned teachers and preachers. And some homeschool curriculum has it in. Not in our house that I know of. How do they insert scientific evolution into the Bible? Well, they do it by changing the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1. The first day God created this. The second day God created this. The third day God created this. They say, well, the day doesn't mean a 24-hour period of a, you know, 24-hour period as we know it. A day means long Hundreds of millions of years. So as you put each day hundreds of millions of years, you can somehow come up with meshing the harmonizing. So this view tries to give lip service to the Genesis account, but it reinterprets it to fit the modern beliefs about genealogy, no, geology, biology, cosmetology, and all the other ologies that you can put in there. So evolution is an accepted fact. There were some pre-Adamic creatures, you know, monkeys were evolving to people. And at some point in time, God breathed into this pre-Adamic creature, and there you have Adam. And at that point, people have a soul. And at that point, now they're morally uh, accountable to God. Well, besides butchering the Bible from what it says, it inserts the original Adam and Eve near the end of a long evolutionary process. And it accepts death and disease and all kinds of corruption before the fall of mankind. The third theory is the ruin reconstruction theory which states that there is a huge gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And I will read those two verses. It says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Let's stop there. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, that's good. Then they say, well, the earth was without form and void. The Somehow to to um, to put geology, the long the, the geology looks old. It has fossils in it. It has all kinds of sedimentary rock in it. It just looks like it's old. So to sort of believe that it's old and yet put the Bible together, we're going to say that 
in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That somehow that was Lucifer's realm and domain. When Lucifer fail, fell, the whole world came crashing down as we know it. And now God is recreating the world in Genesis chapter 2. You ever, you ever, any hear that at all? How many heard that? A few. Okay. These are not hard to find. These are, these are all over the place. I was told by my teachers about 20 years ago that I should use a study help called Explore the Book. A very good study help, by the way. Well, I started in that right in the beginning, and immediately I came up to this theory in that book. That study help taught this theory that there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And the reason it's done is to somehow accommodate secular scientific views with what the Bible has. Now, this would be the most conservative view, in fact, that you can then believe in the days of creation as it's stated in the Scripture. think yes okay that is I thought maybe I have the wrong insert here there was a new church that started up that I heard about because the mother church insisted on too much group belief and addressed and the, the, the church that started thought that the, the church they left was too too controlling and whatever and if they started meeting, they got an influx of a lot of new people coming in, like some new churches do. And one of them that came in, I was told, is an evolutionist. Wow. Then I asked him, well, is he an atheistic evolutionist? Or is he a theistic evolutionist? Or is he a progressive creationist? I mean, all those things that... You, Probably one of these theories is probably what that one espoused. He probably was not an atheist. He was probably one of these. So how do we interpret scripture? Are there millions of years somewhere in it? If someone would come to you and, and, and present the case of progressive creation, what would you, how would you refute him or her? And the question we could ask, well, how did Jesus understand the scripture? If we search the New Testament scriptures, we find many interesting statements, not dealing directly with, not dealing directly with evolution, but just simply, we can tell how, what Jesus thought of scripture. And he says in Mark 10, when asked about marriage, he said these words, and I'll just read it in verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And from this passage, we can see that Jesus clearly thought that creation was young. Adam and Eve existed from the beginning. You can't put too much before the beginning, can you? How much? At the beginning. Another verse in Mark 13, 
talking about uh, tribulation. Verse 19, for in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. There's going to come a time in the future when it's going to be worse than it's ever been. Now, I don't know how bad this ruin recreation theory was when the whole world was destroyed, but it's, it's, it's going to be worse in the future than that. So I don't think that happened. There's another one. Then the, that the blood, this is Luke 11, 50 and 51. This is Jesus talking. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required from this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, shall be required of this generation. Who was the first person to die? It was Abel. And he makes it clearly from the foundation of the world. So Jesus clearly, if you look at Genesis, Jesus accepted Genesis as it was written. And then, he, if you look in other areas, we're not going to look them all up. He, he considered as historical fact the flood of Noah, the uh, swallowing of Jonah in a big fish, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as all literal historical fact. And Jesus, unfortunately, would not be accepted in most of the higher learning centers of our day. He would not be accepted. He would not be accepted in most of the Christian colleges of our day. Most of them do not believe this. But there is an example of how we can look at the Lord Jesus, how he viewed the scripture, and we can interpret the scripture. Okay, that's a sort of preamble to where I want to go today. Maybe I should ask the question, why all this chatter about proper Bible interpretation? Maybe we have more pressing issues today than that. Maybe we have lukewarmness. Maybe we have a lack of a vision for the lost. Maybe we have, and you can put your one or your ten issues in there and say that's more important than proper Bible interpretation. Why look at this? Something as abstract as the methods of Bible interpretation. One of the things that Jesus prayed for is unity. He said that unity is what will convince the world that we are God's people. Or that he was sent by God. However, would the world describe the church as united? Not too good. Well, a large part of the Christians of Christians has come with an answer. We know how to get united. We have decided that since it's doctrine that divides, we're going to 
minimize doctrine to a few non-negotiables or minimize them as much as we can. If it's doctrine that divides us, then let's get rid of the reason of why we're divided. So, let's get rid of dogmatic doctrine. And now that when we got rid of that, now we can pour our energies together. Now we got freedom. Now we have effectiveness because we are united. There's strength and unity. We can share our resources. I like to propose another reason for division in the church. It is various ways of interpreting the Bible. The most obvious cause for divisions in the church has to do with the method of Bible interpretation and then the consistent application of that interpretation. It's actually a two-part. I'm not sure how much we'll look at the last one. So this morning we will look actually very briefly at several variations of interpretations and consistent practice. My disclaimer is going to be this morning that as I, if I would grade myself as how I want to get a clear summary, if I would grade myself on what I got, I would give myself a D minus. I, I really think I'm gonna, it's gonna be woefully inadequate. Now, if you wanna grade me lower than that, you may do that. You may give me an F. And you can talk to me afterwards and, and, and talk about. But, my main consolation is even a D minus paper has some things right. So, maybe we can get some gain out of that. So, if you can look at the benefit, please over, overlook the shortcomings and we can learn from. Maybe I should say it's uh, also partly uh, Louis Oberholzer's fault. He gave me a book <laughs> called The uh, King Jesus Claims His Church. That is actually written by the moderator of the debate that was between with, was, uh, with uh, Dean Taylor and what is the other one for David Bershaw versus the two college professors. The moderator of that wrote a book, and uh, I will be pulling actually fairly strongly from that book the rest of the message. And he had a number of interest, interesting things in there. There he says that sola scriptura was a clarion call of the Reformation. The Protestant movement championed the, that belief among other beliefs, that sola scriptura, the Bible only. But actually, sola scriptura is actually a pretty misunderstood slogan, if you want to say it that way. And so, and so there will be some, I want, to, I want to clarify some of the misunderstandings that people put on sola scriptura this morning. It is interesting that actually the Anabaptists and the Protestants both champion sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, as the rule 
of authority for faith and practice. But the most contentious with the doctrine of scripture of sola scriptura is in relation to tradition. And that's what we're going to go on now with the rest of the morning. The oldest tradition here is tradition one. That states that that tradition one is is a thinking that let me see try to this it describes the church's understanding of the Bible. In other words, the church has an understanding of the Bible and then it it teaches and it practices that understanding of the scripture and that becomes its practice. It's called tradition one. I get a little clearer as we get on here. So tradition is not in addition to scripture, but the two co inhere and coexist with one another. Tradition is essentially the church's exegesis of scripture. And I thought to get a little bit of meat on there, I'm going to use an example from Scripture to explain how that means. Okay? And why did I pick this one? I don't know. It was easiest, so I did this one. First Timothy 2, chapter 2 and verse 9. We have this Paul speaking here. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now, that's a directive given. And because of that directive, the church has developed some traditions. First, God addresses the spirit and the demeanor of a woman and describes what it should be. And then he gives some specific examples of her attire. Or direction, not with the hair, not with fancy or showing hairstyles or gold or pearls or costly array. Now, because of that, because of that directive, we here have some traditions, and one of them would be that our ladies don't go to the hairstylist. I don't think so. That's a tradition, it's a practice. And in something you practice regularly, it becomes a tradition. It's something you do. Nor do we wear jewelry of any kind, including a wedding band. Nor do we advocate the related practice, which is the wearing of makeup. Whether you agree with that or not, that is a firm tradition around here. And there's some direction given as to what modest clothing is. Some direction, that becomes part of tradition too. So, tradition one then represents the exegesis of the scripture as understood by the church. Tradition is the scripture put into practice. But scripture must always be over tradition and not the other way around. Tradition two actually came into the church after 325 and it gained prominence in the Middle Ages. And this view teaches that tradition contains material beyond the interpretation of Scripture and it represents a separate, distinct source of revelation. 
tradition becomes in addition to scripture. In fact, it becomes a co-equal authority with scripture. This is actually what the Pharisees were doing with their oral traditions that they had and the Torah and all the things is that their traditions had the same level and usually higher than the scripture. Now, I don't know if you recognize who has that viewpoint clearly. Anybody want to guess? Middle Ages. Catholic, yes. Catholic Church would have had that clearly as their position, tradition too. And it was that position, position two, that the reformers strongly, strongly objected to. They said, sola scriptura. The reformers saw themselves not as introducing some new teaching, but they were actually overturning the new innovation that came in in the Middle Ages. They allowed for tradition and eldership authority and collective wisdom from the past. But such authority is subordinate to the scripture. The final authority is always scripture alone. So tradition one does not deny the necessity of traditions of Bible interpretations. It doesn't deny that you can have creeds and that creeds are good. They call it creedal formulations. It doesn't actually even deny that there are church practices handed down to you that you have accepted. You have It's been handed to you, church practices that help express and pass on the faith. Tradition 1 does not deny any of that. What it says is that authority... That tradition, that hand down, whatever you got, is always subject to the authority of Scripture. Scripture is the su- supreme authority and it does not compete. It's not to compete with any kind of tradition. So what is tradition zero? And why is zero? Well, this is actually the more modern way of prevalent view today. And it states that scripture is not the only infallible authority. It is the only authority. But that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Scripture is not the only infallible authority. It's the only authority. Well, it's actually the Bible and me doctrine that has largely flourished because of the rise of our day of individualism and weak group thinking is the way the book puts it, weak group thinking, okay? (laughs) And it is actually radically different from tradition one. Tradition zero says the Bible is the only authority and there's no other authority. It 
This view has been judged or termed tradition zero because it allows no room for tradition at all. There is no real sense in which tradition has any authority. Instead, the believer, the individual believer, requires nothing more than the Holy Spirit and the Bible. The Reformers' appeal to the Scripture alone was never intended to mean me alone and the Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura, the Scripture alone. This one here puts an emphasis on sola. Alone. I am the one who interprets what scripture means. It's what this tradition is. Scripture then becomes subjective to what I believe. It becomes relative to what anyone believes. And we were talking earlier about how the Lord Jesus prayed for unity of the church. And I'm wondering how you're going to get unity out of that one. There are as many differences of interpretations as there are individuals under that tradition, tradition zero. And so these People who appear to this tradition say, well, we need to go to the scripture. The scripture is the, uh, is the authority. In other words, if we have a disagreement, let's go to the Bible. But that's only as good as your interpretation of the scripture. Because to make the appeal to scripture is to actually make an appeal to interpretation of scripture. That's really what it is. And there's not going to come a lot of unity together on that one. All appeals to scripture are appeals to interpretations of scripture. And so the only real question always comes, whose interpretation shall we go by? People with differing interpretations of scripture cannot set a Bible on the table and ask it to resolve their issues In order for the scripture to function as authority, it has to be interpreted by someone. And according to this tradition, it is interpreted always by the individual. That will lead to subjectivism and relativism. They are going to run amok with that kind of thinking. In running away from, this is called uh, hierarchical, this is called, uh, let me see the word here they used, hermeneutical. Hermeneutical tyranny. The church just took the authority out of the way from the individual and said, you've got to do what we say. That's tyranny. They took it down to the opposite extreme, it is hermeneutical 
anarchy. Anybody can make an application as they see scripture. Now, that would be another message. And I, if, I'm, if I'm already in a groove too much, I don't think I'll do this for next. But how do we interpret Scripture would be a very valid uh, you know, discussion sometime. How do we actually do that as a group? But uh, maybe I'll let someone else do that. And it's, it's way too large to get into that for now. But if you remember the last message, I had said rules without values are meaningless. And as a result, they're ineffective. Values without rules are impractical. Now, let's just change. Let's change the word values for scripture. Scripture. And, and let's change the rules for tradition. Let's just change that. Let's, let, let's see how this, how this sounds. Values, rules without values are meaningless. Okay. So, tradition without scripture it's meaningless, and as a result, it's ineffective. Scripture without traditions are impractical. Traditions, as I defined it, they are the way the church or the group defines what Scripture means and puts it into and believes it and puts it into practice. That's your tradition. You need to have it. And is that the key is to have deeply embedded deep values with minimal but clear rules. And so is uh, is to understand clearly what Scripture means, and then have it clearly connected to the Scripture, and have practices clearly connected to that. You cannot function without at least a minimal amount of rules or traditions clearly articulated from the scripture without an eventual descent into anarchy. They don't have to be written, but they have to be understood. This is what we believe the Bible teaches, and this is how we apply it. So I try to explain that tradition one is the position that we actually do Accept that I accept as a valid one in contrast to the other two. Jesus did say, and this is, we, we all agree that tradition two is incorrect. It's tradition zero is the one that we most of the time bump up against the most. And uh, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18 and and I'll just read these few verses again. It said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. And in there I see a clear balance between individual autonomy and yet in the context of community. And eventually it is the community that makes the final decision. That is the way as I see Jesus understanding that. It was not each person for himself 
and it's and and that, but it's it's a community of believers that are interacting together. Now, there's one more thing I want to look at when we look in Bible interpretation, and those are two words. Maybe I should write them on here because they're a little. Some of you will like classes like this much better than others, especially those who like school. Who can say the second word and what it means? Yes. You know what it means. <laughs> okay. Anybody know what orthodoxy means? You probably pretty well know what it means. Maybe you can't describe it. Orthodoxy means uh, the uh, orthodoxy actually has a bad connotation because uh, it's a Catholic church with orthodox. And that's a bad thing, but that the Catholic Church is not Orthodox. Orthodox is the original teachings. Okay, that's pretty well what it is. And it's a good word in that sense. It means you believe the right things. Orthodoxy means you believe the right things. Orthopraxy means you do the right things. It's praxy. It's apparently a, some word that connected to that. Now, I like to just... Just look at one thing. I didn't bring it up, but you have your confession of faith. And the front of your confession of faith, you have um, confession of faith and practice, right? Okay, you have a confession of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That's really what it means, okay? <laughs> Most statements of faith are statements of orthodoxy in most churches. And you get a lot of variations but I just got an example here. We believe that the Bible is the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error in the original manuscripts. The Bible is the revelation of God's truth and is infallible and authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. And we believe in the Holy Trinity. There is one God who existed eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that all are sinners and totally unable to save themselves from God's displeasure except by his mercy. I think this is a Calvinistic one. (laughs) But basically what I'm trying to bring out is this is a statement of faith. It's a statement of what you believe. And what you believe is reality and what you believe the Bible teaches. And most people do not object to a statement of faith that affirms what a church believes. It actually would be a rare organization who does not in some way affirm its beliefs. But what about orthopraxy? It's a statement of what we practice. What we Here is where most 
churches let an individual to determine how to apply the scripture. In this church, you got to believe this. But in this church, you have to let your conscience decide what you, what you do, largely. So, when it comes to faith, I erased it, most churches are tradition one. But when it comes to practice, most churches practice in tradition zero. <clears throat> when it comes to faith, you have to believe the Trinity. You have to be born again or whatever you put in there. You have to have that thing in there straight. But when it comes to what the Bible teaches in practical areas, that's between me and God. Because I don't have a conscience against that, so I can do that. Or I have not been convicted about this one thing in the scripture, so therefore I do not have to do it. That's tradition zero. Flat on. Of course, the accusation will come. Well, if it's not in my heart, it won't help me if I do it. No, it won't. Doing things on the outside you had no conviction for will not change it. But I think it is hypocritical to have a statement of faith that requires people to believe something. You've got to believe like the group does. And then to criticize the requirement for a person to practice as the group. Because they're one and the same. A statement of faith clarifies how a group understands scripture with respect to doctrine. And a statement of practice clarifies how a group understands scripture with respect to practice. Biblical standards seek to interpret scripture in the light in the traditional in the tradition one sense. I had an interesting experience twenty plus years ago. I was frequent a farm regularly where um, well no let's let's start here first. At that point I was working with some conservative Mennonites who stressed having standards. And their idea of a standard was that the church agrees on a certain pattern, a certain rule, or a certain practice. And when a church agrees with it, that was the only one permitted. Okay? You could have any color shoes you wanted, as long as it was black. <laughs> and areas of that nature. Pattern was defined. I disagreed with that. I had been convinced of the charity way. I believe most of the same principles that they did. Not everything, but most. But I said there are numerous ways to fulfill that principle. The main way we please God is find out what he wants, find out the principle, and then you do that. 
but it doesn't have to be in this box. And we had lots of lengthy discussions, mostly friendly. Later, I was out with a regular customer. I think his name was Amos. He had left the Beachy Amish uh, a few years prior. Actually, I think I, when we started going there, he was probably still a part of the, the church. But he left the church and went a different direction. And as we talked, I mentioned charity. I don't know what context. And his reaction was swift. He said, oh, no, not charity. He said, they are way too authoritative. They are way too dictating what you have to do and what you don't have to do. Well, that took me for a spin because I all I knew of charity was the church without rules. That's the way I understood charity. But everybody, the community understood charity that way. And I hear someone who say, oh, no, they're way too authoritative. The leaders tell you what to do. That's not right. He said, it is the Father's responsibility to fall on their face before God and get direction for his family. And he said it about exactly like that, with that emphasis. He really believed it. Well, we had a little discussion. I didn't change his mind. But I was well versed in the other side because I heard it all the time. And all of a sudden, I was on the other side. I was trying to convince him, no, that's not right. That's too loose. That... <laughs> I was telling him what I had been told by the other people. But I didn't make a dent in his belief. He was convinced. Now, I don't know a lot about him. Just a casual acquaintance with work. I don't know exactly what his walk with God was like or what pressures he faced. I, I don't know. All I know is what I could observe. That's all I could do. But in the possibly 10 years' time, no, it was less than that, seven or eight years' time that I would have been going there, Amos had twin daughters. When we started to go there, they were just little girls wearing beachy dresses. You know what that's like. Okay. By the time, last time I was there, it was a hot day. They were in their young teens, and they were wearing tank tops and shorts. I guess he was falling on his face before God and finding direction for his family. Now, I have to be careful that we don't put everybody in the same box just because of that. We have to be careful of that. But I want to use that as an example of... Of, of that kind of thinking can go all over the place. And and you can say, well, that was that person. Said, uh, but anyhow, it, it, take it where it is. It's just an example that I, that I had. And it's true that requiring people to practice something does not change their heart. Only God can change their heart. But neither does requiring people to believe something change their heart. When we believe the truth, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free is an experience. It's something you will experience. It's freedom from Satan. It's freedom from flesh. 
and worldliness. It's freedom to follow the King Jesus. And it's that kind of freedom that I want all of us to experience together. So anyhow, I don't have a real tidy way of pulling the message together. That's just an appeal that um, that we are on a journey. Let's pray for each other. Let's help each other. Let's love each other. It is Jesus who has won the battle. And as a congregation, as a church group, let us seek God and pray and seek God together. And let us seek the scripture together. And um, so I don't know. That's a Bible class I have this morning. So may God bless you.